Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am so excited to be joined today by John Richards, the head of developer relations at Paladin Cloud, which is a rapidly growing cloud security company with a lot of roots in open source. We're really excited to dig into security, open source movements, and developer advocacy and education. How's it going today, John? It is going well. Thank you so much for having me on here, John. I appreciate it. Yes, it's going to get really confusing, John, John, but that's okay. I have another friend who I deal with this all the time, and we always say, it's never a problem for either of us. We always know who we're talking about. It's only a problem for everyone else. Yeah. If you really want to, you can call me Jonathan. Only my parents call me that, but it'll help us distinguish if we really want to. So I always like to start each episode with what I call like origin stories. I like to hear from people how they got their start and ended up where they are. So where did you come from? Where's your technical background and your origin story? Yeah. I mean, it's probably... Fairly common with a lot of folks started out. I loved video games and I was like, I want to program video games. Maybe I'll do this and was fortunate enough to be able to take some classes and go for like a CIS degree. And in that process, never wound up making video games, which is probably a good thing. I probably wouldn't enjoy them today if I did. But I found out I really did love coding, even if I didn't really know what it was to begin with. And so that led into being a developer, which I did for about a decade. And I always thought of myself as an introvert for quite a while. And then as I started to do some self-reflection, I really loved working with other folks. And I took some classes, went to Toastmasters, started learning to present and really enjoyed that. And that led into starting to get really involved in open source community. And in that, started going to conferences, ended up organizing conferences. And that split kind of my career over into this area that started to move into developer education, developer resources as an advocate for open source communities. And I love it, getting to help other folks along on their journey. I mean, there is little that is as rewarding as somebody who's hit a rock wall, not sure what to do, and you're able to say, hey, here's how I solve that, or here's how some other person solved that, but to show them some direction and they get over it and that helps their career, helps them grow, whatever that is. And so I love when that's able to happen. So that's kind of how I got into advocacy now and this area. That's great. So I think we're probably relatively close in age. And I noticed that, you know, at least on your LinkedIn, the first kind of role you had was building LAMP apps, which I think maybe not everyone listening is familiar. It's right. It's like, Apache, MySQL, PHP, to me, like very traditional web applications. That was very similar to how I got my start. I'm curious, like when you were thrown into that role, how much did you know about building applications and how much were you figuring it out on the job? I had an amazing professor who gave us so much helpful knowledge. I mean, she was just brilliant, but it was fascinating that I went on the job and Within a month of working 40-hour week, part-time, like 20-hour week at the time, I realized I had put more time in than like I would put in an entire class. 
And it was very focused. And it's really important to learn those fundamentals and that kind of reasoning from first principles. So we weren't taking shortcuts in class. But I remember going in and then the head of the developer team saying, all right, spin this stuff up. And I had installed my own PHP, my own MySQL server, all these steps myself before in our class. And that was like a week project. I was just learning. It was a huge ordeal. I'm like, okay, give me this time. He's like, no, go to this site, download this bundle, the old WAMP package back in the day, download that. And within hours, I was like, I'm started. This is amazing. And I remember going back to tell my professor about this. And she was like, oh yeah, I know about that. But you wouldn't learn as much if you started there. So there was this kind of like spike in how much you have to learn, what you are doing as you just get some hands-on experience and really being around other folks who know what that is. I was very fortunate to have some really helpful folks who helped me along because it would have taken me forever to be able to pick up all those skills on my own. Yeah. That's funny. Like, I don't want to like dwell too much on nostalgia, but like, do you think that what you're describing there and sort of like what I experienced too is still a path for people to get into the industry? Like, I remember in the mid to early 2000s that like, if you had some like general coding knowledge, you could probably get a job as a web developer. But now it does feel like the bar is higher, right? Like the level of skill required might have risen quite a bit because the technologies are more complex or there's more people out there doing it. Like, what do you think? I agree with what you're saying, but I think we have some alternate resources and we already prefaced it, but I love open source. And I think that's where back then, and it probably was my lack of awareness because I was in a small town. There wasn't open source communities that I was aware of. But now what I see replacing some of that early journey, because there is kind of this higher bar to entry, is folks engaging with open source projects, sites like uh, good GitHub first issues, things like that, that let folks come in and say, okay, I am a beginner. I don't have the skill set to really do this yet. But can I find a open source project that has a community because then one, there's things that they could easily fix. It might take them five minutes, but they haven't fixed it because they know there's more value if you can get a new community member to come in and it may take them an hour, but that process has so full of knowledge that they can learn going through it. And then you've got other folks there who you can ask a question to, maybe you even fix it and then you get a response back that says, okay, you fixed this, but here's seven ways you could have fixed that better. But if that's done in a with a mindset towards growth, then that's a, an amazing opportunity to say, oh, I got to the answer. Next time I'll think about how do I use less code to write this? How do I make it more secure? How do I do that? So I do see some open source projects being intentional about that. And I hope that that can replace that. Like we maybe don't see that as much in employment where you can get those easy, an internship or something to start learning this. Well then look at open source projects for this because they want to help new folks come on board and they are identifying easier tasks for folks to onboard. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Especially because I think open source in a lot of ways is more accessible than like, getting a web dev job at a small business was because there's only so many of those small businesses that need a web developer. Yes. And because it's also hard then to find the like folks who want that because Mm -hmm. you could do so much training yourself. 
different folks learn different ways. But for me, eventually I need hands on for it to stick around. Like I can learn knowledge, but it goes away. It feels like if I watch a video, I'll lose it in a week if I don't use it in some way. But once I've used it, that retention is so much higher and it's hard to make a fake project I've found. So being able to find a real reason to do something is awesome. Yeah. One of the pieces of advice I give to people who are like, really learning to code for the first time is exactly what you just described, which is like, don't just like build an arbitrary project, like have a specific solution in mind that solves a problem that you're intimately familiar with, because then you'll actually be thinking through both like the actual code implementation, as well as all of the other aspects of product development that ultimately inform how you write your code and doing that abstract translation of like concept to code is really difficult otherwise. Yeah, for sure. And you have folks who will start that, but if you're just trying to imagine it, it can be hard to have the realistic like problems that might poke holes in what you're doing. Whereas if you do a real project or not even necessarily a real, but a project for a real thing, then you have natural answers to those challenges. And maybe it won't get used. Like what if you build doesn't have to get used, but tying it to something real is helpful. And plus that gives you more real world experience because I've built plenty of things that got scrapped before they got used. Yep. So stepping forward a little bit, you mentioned that you learned a lot of public speaking skills through Toastmasters and you're not the first developer advocate or, you know, DevRel type that swears by Toastmasters or similar like public speaking experiences. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like when you were starting with that, how did you sort of get comfortable with the idea of talking in front of groups? Like what was that actual process like? Yeah. So there's some similarities to learning to develop, which is Mm. it's really helpful if you could find a mentor to work with. Somebody will help you along with that. And so I was really fortunate that it was a new chapter forming. It was through my workplace of employment. So I already had some like connection to folks in there and we were able to build kind of a safe place to fail. Again, another technique, if you're learning development, having a place where if you mess something up, it's gonna get caught and you have the safety to try new things. And so we had that where we were speaking. Folks were there, they'd give you feedback, But I had times where I flopped, I messed up horribly, and I was very supported even in that because it was a learning experience. And then having that mentorship along with it saying, hey, here's what you did well that was encouraging, but also came in with some really good feedback on things I could improve. We'd build goals together, kind of set some planning. And that really helped me feel more comfortable. I remember my first talk I was going to give out of it. I wanted to submit something, but I was too afraid to do it. And so what I did, I talked to my mentor and said, hey, would you co-present this talk with me? And that gave me the courage to get up there and speak. And then once I did it, I was like, oh, I can do this. But I had that little safety blanket by having my friend there supporting me. And since then, I've tried to kind of give that back. There's been multiple folks that I've worked with who haven't presented before. And I said, hey, let's submit a joint talk. And that lowered that barrier of entry. It helps too, if you want to get accepted, you're like, hey, here is somebody who's already done this before, who's had talks accepted. I'll work with them. They can help me show like what's important to put in, what's important to leave out. And then you have kind of that safety net, if you will. You know, if you freeze up on stage, that person's been there. They could step in, start talking, help cover up whatever happens. And almost every time when that's done, the person says, oh, this was a lot easier than I thought. Hey, I could do this now on my own. Yeah. Why do you think it's important for developers to get in front of a crowd? Like there's definitely a stereotype that developers 
are perhaps a little bit more introverted, which I don't know if that's a true stereotype, but it is a common one. So I would first say, if that's something you want to do, then you should. But I also have met developers who were very happy, never getting in front of a crowd, heads down. And as long as that wasn't impacting their like their goals for what they wanted, their thing, kind of business, like their objectives and what they wanted their career to do, I wanted to support them in that. Because I don't think everybody needs to be out there doing it. But if you are interested, please do. And it's also, maybe not everybody wants to do it on a broad stage, but I do hope that a lot of folks would want to do this, at least on a smaller scale. Folks who I know who are terrified to present, when we said, hey, let's just do this, eight other developers in the room, let's just sit here and talk. And they really enjoyed being able to share their knowledge. So everybody has something to share, but you don't have to start big and you can maybe find a smaller scale where you can share that. So yeah, I guess my thing would be, you don't have to, but if you're interested at all, folks out there want to support you, want to make that happen because you do have something valuable to say, even if you don't realize it, if you could find your own voice, find what you're passionate about, that will resonate with folks. I agree. And if someone is interested in doing that, what do you think they can learn from translating their technical ideas into a public-facing format? Yeah, so I'll speak just from my experience. It is such a challenge to take all the thoughts that are maybe in my head and to put, like, write them out on paper, to put them into a coherent line. And I think they're coherent in my head, but until I try to actually put that as a sentence, I realize, oh, This isn't as well-formed as I thought it was. And so that process will make you a better communicator, whether that's just in meetings with your team or with clients, if you are involved in those. But the process of saying, oh, I need to make this make sense. I want to build an arc or a narrative of some kind that's engaging to folks. So I need to think about either chronology of how things happened or how this makes sense for whatever point I want to make. Those are really good skills to develop regardless. So I think those can be valuable beyond just I'm speaking, but can help you in your career path kind of going forward when you're talking to other folks. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think similar to you, I had a boss who was very invested in helping me and my teammates improve our public speaking abilities. And this is back at Twilio. And he used to like run us through drills and we would do feedback and like all these things, some of which I think were borrowed from Toastmasters. But a big part of it was the messaging, like not just the skill, which is a skill to speak and articulate well, but also how do you actually rephrase or translate technical concepts into something that comes across well to a group. And I always found that fascinating. And like, when I think about teaching, that's a big part of what really effective teachers do too, is like figure out how to translate concepts into a lot of different understandable messages. I'm curious, like, now that you're doing developer advocacy and DevRel full time for a number of years now, right, like four, five years, something like that, where have you found to sort of like, bring that mentality in, right? Like, are you teaching other people how to do public speaking? Are you helping people translate their own concepts? Like, what does it actually look like as a DevRel leader? Yeah, so a couple ways that this kind of manifests itself when you're trying to do this. And so one is, I think 
I talk about like DevRel, if you're thinking about that as like a career path to use hopefully a, a video game analogy that won't go over too many folks' head. There's this idea of like prestige classes and video games, which is where to do this, you kind of have to have experience doing two other things. And once you've learned both of those, you open up this new avenue. And so I find it's very challenging to try and step into developer advocacy as like the first thing that you do, because you need some basic skill of technology, and then you need basic skill of being able to communicate, present, share ideas in different formats. Some folks specialize in webinars, some folks at, at live events, some are, are writing. Developer advocacy is very broad in what it does at different organizations. But you're bringing together almost two different skill sets. And when you combine those, you get kind of this specialized path that's made available. And so thinking about it as a career path, you can kind of come into it in either direction. And I think one of the things when like looking to hire or looking for folks that would be a good fit is trying to say, does somebody have an aptitude for learning? And do they already have some skills in one of these areas? And then you can help grow the other skills. So if you're a developer already and you're interested in doing something like this and you're wanting to learn that, a lot of the same skills that helped you learn the technologies that you're already experienced with are going to be helpful as you look to build up your presentation skills. Again, finding mentors, working with folks, listening and seeing what other folks do and saying, how can I copy and learn from that? And again, finding communities that support this. There's a lot of open source groups now that have all kinds of events or training for folks who want to be first-time presenters, you can go and learn from. And so as a leader in the space, you're looking for folks who have the aptitude to do that and saying, how can I support you in this? What are the resources you need to make this happen? Again, back to kind of safe places to fail. Where can you practice and learn? You don't want to be giving a keynote for your first presentation usually and be like, oh no, I messed this up. So how can you find Let's do this at a smaller scale. Let's do some practices, things like that. That makes perfect sense. So in the role that you're in currently uh, with Paladin Cloud, I know that there's sort of like a cross-section of security folks and developers, which are not always the same group of people, right? Like, I think a lot of people think of cybersecurity as like a separate discipline. What has sort of your experience been as you're talking about this platform, like where do those groups intersect and where do they differ? So I enjoy the intersection of groups. And part of that is a little of my background now, like developer relations tends to fall in either product or marketing, but regardless of which one, you need to have a close connection with the other team. Which one are you in currently? Marketing probably on this side, yeah. So both marketing here, but I was also on the marketing team at my previous job. And even before that, when I was still a developer, I was a developer embedded inside of the marketing team. So now for about the last, I don't know, eight, 10 years, maybe I have been very closely tied to marketers, despite having a very technical role. And the reason I mentioned that is when you see like different groups that kind of connect with each other, where you start to say, hey, there is some boundary here that can either be a chance to collaborate or a chance for silos to build. And we see the same thing here when we look at security and kind of DevOps teams out there. And what we see in a lot of places, I mean, there's this idea of folks talk about DevSecOps, de developer security operations, but I've talked to so many folks who say, that's really a pipe dream. That's not a real thing. And the product I'm with came out of, it was started at T-Mobile, 
as an open source project there from the developer operations. It was their center of cloud excellence that built this because security was always saying, here's the important things you need to take care of. And the developers didn't have visibility into it. And so in this case, the idea is a tool that helps bridge that gap between the two. And you could do that a lot of different ways, but it's important that those two teams are talking. I've been a developer and had emailed to me this like Excel spreadsheet of here's all these violations, go fix them. But I didn't have any context for that. I was so confused. Now, they did catch very real problems. You know, I've messed up. I've left an opportunity for a SQL injection. So I am thankful for the security team providing that. But there was still this silo or at least this like, I'll throw this over the wall. You take care of it. You throw it back with your response instead of kind of this collaborative nature. And I hope that what we can do is regardless of which teams we're talking about, start to get where there's more communication, there's less us versus them and more of us together. And so I think as we think about being developers, as we think about this idea of like education is how can you mutually educate each other. Because I don't know any developers out there who are like, I hate security. I want to build in secure projects. Maybe there's somebody, but basically folks want to make secure projects, but often they're not sure how. And if all the knowledge of how to do that lives over in a security team, then the developers are at a loss for that. Like everybody is at a weaker spot because there's not this communication. But if they could share across and, and likewise, you want the security team to know about the challenges developers face because if they're kind of in this ivory tower of this is what perfect security is, but that never makes it down to like the real life where teams have multiple environments and you got to break something. You're like, oh, I learned from this. I'll fix it now. Then it may not be applicable and you get this problem of these long delays. And so what we want to see is a community's building up of folks working together across those. And it can be tough to tear down some of those silos, but that's kind of our mission. Our goal here is to make life easier for both of those teams by finding ways to help them work together. What are some strategies that have been effective at getting them to work together? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges is around tooling with like license requirements. A lot of times the security team has all this information, but it might only be available for four folks. Giving that to a hundred developers out there is just costly. Like you can't do that. Whereas if you're using an open source project, you don't run into those license requirements. Hey, let's give this to everybody. So there's some of that that's just like, our business models can constrain how we do this. And if you've only got that license, you're stuck in a world of sending out reports. I know a team right now that's trying to solve this and they're using 30 different spreadsheets and they're trying to send those out to different teams that let them know. So it can become a mess. And I do think that's where the more we have the opportunity for things like open source, it's collaborative nature really works well to saying, hey, we can collaborate internally as a team if we're using tools that are also collaborative. Yeah. When you're creating content about Paladin, where do you draw that line? Like, is all of the content designed to be read by both developers and security professionals? Are there different libraries of content for different personas? How do you approach that? Yeah, there is a bit of both. There's some kind of like, let's try and make a general. We, you need to sometimes have two audiences. But as you get into specific things, trying to say our audience is everybody is the challenge. And so I do create content that is targeted towards specific folks. And then the hope is that there's kind of maybe a hook if one of those other folks is listening in 
that will maybe draw them in. And so it might be this piece of content is really targeted at developers, but we'll bring in some security to interest them. Or maybe we front load something. So one thing is to like be like, let's start by giving the high level overview, which often maybe resonates more with the security team as they're thinking about a little more abstract concepts of risk management and what's important. And then we'll dive deep into the technical details afterwards so that that framing helps developers understand what's going on while at the same time, the security person may say, hey, I've got what I needed. Maybe I'll forward this over to the development team now. And maybe they don't listen to everything, but at least they got the main concept that will help them think about that going forward. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. How does that process interact with the open source part of the community? Because I know that like some companies that I speak to that have both a proprietary and an open source offering have different content for different parts of it. Some of them, the whole thing is open source and anyone contribute. How do you all like deal with that? So yeah, right now the open source is like a full product. And then we've got a SaaS version, which has some extra kind of enterprise features. And what we've seen, that's probably where that maybe that biggest split exists is that security teams do tend to be more on the enterprise side. And so some of that content is more targeted in that direction, whether that's things like SLAs or needing to have reports around specific standards, things like that are going to fit one audience a little more. Whereas digging into technical implementation or how do you write your own code to modify this or build things out is going to tend to lean towards the more developer side, the DevOps persona that's going to be actually implementing and putting that in place. So for us, at least, thankfully, there is kind of a logical delineation. And then some of that we've also done around like audiences. So if we're going to an audience that an event that is largely an open source audience, then we focus that kind of content there that makes sense for them. And then if we're going to an event that, you know, maybe is purely security practitioners, we might have less of the open source, you know, but like we were at KubeCon and we saw twice as many pamphlets for open source went out as for our enterprise. And we started, hey, let's just talk about open source because that's what interests the folks there. And so some of it is being aware of like, who is our target audience here? How am I going to talk about something when I share that? And what we want to do is kind of like leave it out there. So you might look at like, what are early probing questions to understand what that person is interested in, what will fit with them. And so we sometimes start with those to try and ask a little bit about what their existing setup is, what kind of they're already using, because that might give us an idea of what kind of content or what kind of product they would prefer. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned earlier that DevSecOps is kind of a, a popular idea to talk about, but it's not really a reality. Why do you think that is? There are folks out there who will say it's a reality at their organization, but a lot of folks who won't. And one challenge is, is thinking of DevSecOps as its own, a separate group. So like, is DevSecOps kind of a type of practice or is it its own group? Because if it's its own group, you've got DevOps, you've got security, and then you're going to create a third group. There is a level of organizations need to be at a certain size to even consider that. And it's a lot of investment to be able to do that, to have this maybe third group. And so on that level, I think we have a challenge against it just because it's like, it's too much overhead to try and make this. And then what's their real purpose? Sometimes it gets used as an offhand to talk about, well, let's bring 
these practitioners under any specific name to be more collaborative. And I think that's the goal we want to get towards. And maybe eventually that is a merged group or it is this new group that kind of focuses on that. And so I think some of it is just terminology in a new area that's always going to create some challenges. But some of that is also just these groups do work differently. The folks in risk management who are doing a lot of this security stuff are thinking about things on a, a different level of we've got an organization, we've got some amount of limited budget. How do we understand what are the biggest risks to us? How do we mitigate those? One thing that comes up here, for instance, is kind of throwing everything at teams. And so a breach or something will happen and they'll they'll come up, they'll have this discussion and the team says, hey, why wasn't X fixed? And security says, look, here is the paper we gave you that says, we told you about this problem. And so like it's, we've covered for ourselves. But the problem is the developers will say, but look, here's also the other 10,000 things you said that were a problem. None of those caused a breach. We couldn't possibly fix all 10,000 of these issues. So it's easy to say, we told you about this, but from our working side, this is a challenge. And I think that is the real thing is it's difficult for teams to understand like the an acceptable amount of risk that's there. Some folks I talk to who are able to make a kind of like, they're able to get all their violations, all the alerts and things they get from their different tools down to zero. And it's amazing for folks who can do that. But for a lot of groups, just financially, it's not possible to really throw that much at it. I went to a great presentation at KubeCon from one of the head security guys at Red Hat. And he talked about this idea of it costing like $1,000 for each CVE violation that needs to get fixed. And then the amount of money, if you were trying to fix all of these violations that it would take to fix everything, so many found it was going to be millions of dollars to try and fix everything. And so they had a policy of we fix critical and high and then anything that's been exploited. And that became a more manageable number. And so to get back to the question there, some of that challenge of fixing these things is you've got one team working on a level that is this larger risk around everything. And then you have developers there who are like, I'm working on my application. What matters specifically to me? And it's maybe a more zoomed in perspective, or they might have a whole broad set of infrastructure tools they're working on, but you might have 12 different teams. And so what's applicable to one might not be to the other. And that's where I think getting tooling into the hands that is contextual to the team itself is really important. So one of the things we try to do is say, hey, can you scope this down to just this team? So then it, when a team feels, hey, I know what is the security challenges with my specific project, I can go fix those. You're empowered with just the information you need, and you also have actionable insights into that. I think that helps bridge that gap. But I think that's missing in a lot of places because it's really complex to be able to make happen. And until you can really make it applicable to the person working on it, give them the context they need, is really hard for that collaboration to happen. Yeah. One of the hot topics I've heard a lot about recently is how open source projects themselves factor into this whole equation, right? Like, the idea that obviously there's massive vulnerabilities that have been exploited and became public. But I think for a long time, there was also a sentiment that open source projects can be more secure than what you build internally because there's so many more eyes on them and so many more people contributing to them. How do you think that that influences this risk assessment? I know everyone's talking about like S-bombs and like all this stuff, but like really like in a day-to-day -day sense, like how do people deal with open source as part of their risk assessment and supply chain? Yeah, 
different organizations have very different patterns for this. We've got organizations who even the idea of open source is too scary for them. I feel that they aren't educated enough on the reality of it, but they're like, we don't want to use that. We want to offload. That sounds too risky. And then other groups I talk to who have policies that say, we won't use anything unless it's open source. If it's not open source, we won't even consider it. So there's a broad range of ideas about this still that are being solved. But for me, what I see, I mean, we say that about certain technologies, but open source has basically consumed the whole entire server world. On one level, we're talking about this in these specific areas, but on another, open source is so broad. We've got Microsoft running their open source teams that you can't say open source is just a security problem. Don't use it. It runs everything. It has become incredibly secure because of its very nature. So I think it's important when you consider this, if you're an organization trying to understand this, is one to realize like it will mess up. There will be problems, but that's true of everything. It's not like that goes away. There will be, but how do you deal with those? And in open source, those mistakes get dealt with in public. And that's painful. It's a challenge when that happens. But the counterpoint is, one, you know they're getting dealt with. And it's now being dealt with as a community. And I've seen problems come up and community members pull together to create amazing solutions I never would have come up with, but by working together to say, hey, how do we secure against this? How do we resolve this quickly, deploy this out? things get fixed faster and better. And then you learn from it because you got to see it. Then the counterpart is, I know at least from some projects I've been on where there's been problems and they weren't open source and those problems can get swept under a rug because nobody knows about it. And then when it actually becomes a problem, it's like, oh, actually we knew about this for six months, but nobody did anything. And now it's a real problem. So you avoid that with the open source. But there is also, I think, when you think about it as from a risk perspective, is understanding back to what your acceptable risk is. If you can accept a lot of risk, you're moving fast, then you might be running on the newest version of things and running open source on the cutting edge and being set up to do whatever. But if you're like, hey, I need to be more secure, then don't use the latest release. Use something that's been sitting out there for a while, that's been tested, that you know works, and that will give you a little more. But Make sure you're staying on a version that has backported security patches or whatever that is for your organization. But you can kind of pick your level of risk. Like, are you going to be running on alpha versions? You know, I had a team, we had to deal with some of this. We had a release cycle where we would pull in the new versions and run those for a while in our testing environments to be sure everything was okay before anything would get pushed out to production. So there's some different techniques you can do to help do that. But those techniques are almost the same thing you would do, whether it's open source or not. Any kind of technology that you have to put your trust in, you need a way to say, hey, how do I get to a level where I'm confident this will work for what I'm going to do? How did you first learn about security? Like as a developer, what resources, what techniques did you use to kind of become knowledgeable about security in the development cycle? So some of it started when you're developing an application and kind of the first time you get a response back, hey, we sent this over to a security team and here's a whole bunch of things that they sent over. And I mean, false positives are a big issue here. Like half of these, I'm like, I don't think this is a real thing, but I got to be able to refute that point. I got to send something back. And so some of that was researching, going online, looking for that. That's kind of my first foray into security was being like, I need to deal with this. But then that first time that you think a bunch of these are false and then you hit one and you're like, oh, wait a second. I made a horrible mistake here. 
and this could have been bad if it was exploited, I should take this seriously. This isn't just a, here's a piece of paper I put out some kind of, you know, boilerplate response to and ignore it. I could really mess things up if I make a mistake, whatever that is, exposing data, causing something to be compromised. And so then it is a, okay, well, how do I learn about this? And you're looking into how you learn best. For me, I love reading a good article about it. So then I start searching for that kind of stuff. I'm looking at different conference talks that talk about security, uh, podcasts, listening to those to say, hey, how do I learn about this? And kind of this broad area where I feel when you're wanting to learn something that's a little bit tangential like that, it's nice to start broad to get an idea of like, what are the common terms here? What are the important things? And then kind of pick an area that applies to you and then go deep after that. Once you have enough language to understand the concepts to dig in. So that was kind of my process on this. And then you want to continually learn. And so then it's kind of finding the figureheads in different organizations or online that are talking about this, that you can follow and say, hey, this person kind of stays on top of things. If I'm listening to what they're saying, I can learn more. Again, back to open source, there's a lot of amazing groups that are doing this. I've been a part of the security tag group at CNCF, and you can go to those and be like, oh, what's going on here? What kind of things are folks talking about? What kind of papers are they putting together? You talked about the S-bombs. That's a big thing right now is like, how do we have this bill of materials? So then you can start to say, well, actually, security is its own whole profession. Do I want to dig in and learn deep in one area that will hopefully give me more context everywhere? Or you kind of choose the level of security you want. But that's, I feel like, a common path to getting in there is just kind of engaging with a lot of different material. That feels like the right way to start. I mean, I have also been in the position I think similar to you, where I was a developer on a project who had to implement either security fixes or preventative measures, which is, I think, probably most people's exposure to security concepts for the first time. But yes, it always feels like there's more to unearth, you know, especially if you talk to the kind of folks who are like involved with DEF CON or Black Hat or some of these like really like yes. hardcore kind of, I don't know, like rogue security practitioner types. There's a lot of layers there. Yeah, well, I think you could feel like you're getting in over your head quick. You know, I was sitting at a table with folks at Black Hat and we're talking about speakers that the FBI came in and dragged off the stage because they were talking about something too sensitive to be, you know, it's always just fascinating. You could go so deep into any of these. But I do think, too, is really just looking for other folks who are interested in that finding some level of community, because then you could share ideas. And it's easy if you don't have other folks to talk about these things with to kind of get some blind spots and how you think about things. And if you can bounce those ideas around with other folks, it's going to give you a lot more well-rounded kind of approach to them. Yeah. I saw that you've been writing and talking recently a little bit about AI and security and how they play together. How does AI change the security outlook for both developers and also for people who are on security teams. Yeah. I mean, on one level, we don't fully know yet. So there is a bit of, you know, as you're like, this is a risk, but it's an unknown risk. How do we prepare for that? But also we don't quite know how it will be fully helpful yet. So one of the things is trying to figure out, will this create all new avenues of attack or will it solve existing avenues of attacks? So like, will we be able to identify zero day exploits, things like that before they can even happen. That would be amazing. But right now, what we do know is AI can scale things up 
in incredible ways. And we can extrapolate out how that will matter for both good and bad. Certain attacks at scale will be much more efficient using AI, but at the same time, using AI to identify threats, to prioritize what's most important. There's a lot of possibility there to do things at a scale that like human trying to do this would just be overwhelming. I went to a great talk that was given by the AWS detective team where they talked about using AI monitoring logs. Like imagine trying to look through a bunch of logs to understand what's going on, nearly impossible. And so a person trying to do that would just get overwhelmed. But using AI at scale to be able to identify anomalies and to get value out of that. So that's an amazing way to do that. We're using AI to prioritize risks. So if you've got a thousand different problems that come in that you need to fix, how do you know what is the most dangerous thing to fix? Well, maybe you've got something that has, there's a vulnerability in your SSH that needs to be fixed. And then if you know that that also has an SSH port open, well, then all of a sudden that vulnerability is a lot more important than if it wasn't. And so how do you say we've got multiple problems affecting something? Let's focus on that because we've only got so much time. So those are areas that it seems like AI is really helpful when we've got a lot of data and we want to try and pull that together. But I do think we may find all new ways for AI to play into this as we go forward. That's great. We, we only have a couple of minutes left here. I feel like we've gotten covered a lot of ground. I always like to end by asking a couple of different questions to folks. The first is that, are there any like content creators, technical educators that you would love to shout out? People who you respect and look up to who are doing really good work in the space? Yeah, one of the best sources I found when I started really kind of digging deep into security when I was like, I want to know a lot was the Cloud Security Podcast. They've also got a YouTube channel, but I love the way they present information. I may be very biased because the original host has an amazing beard. But anyway, that was very helpful for me. I was checking out that podcast. So that's one I would definitely recommend that was influential for me. Thank you. And then the last question I always like to ask, just because I find it kind of an interesting window into how people think about the world is, are there any aspirational figures out there in science, tech, whatever, that you'd love to just take to lunch for a couple hours, pick their brain and find out how they approach the world? Such an open-ended question here. I love it. There is an answer that is like, yes, there are so many of those out there. So what I'll say is, rather than picking a specific person, what I would do is say, encourage folks. If I pick somebody out there, I'm not going to get a chance to go sit there and have lunch with them. But if I think about some of the amazing folks I've met in communities, I've had very real success with reaching out to them and saying, can I have lunch with you? And those have been some of the best conversations that I've had. Uh, So I would encourage folks to just find folks that you don't need to go talk to Bill Gates or an Elon Musk or something to learn a lot. Find somebody who's just leading a community that you value, that is doing something you're interested in and say, can I pay for your lunch to go talk to you? I've cold reached out to folks in different areas. I didn't know. I had an intern that was doing data analytics. They really wanted to know data analytics. I had a friend at a company who had a friend and I said, hey, if we pay lunch for you, can you come just talk about this with us? And they took the time out of their day to come have lunch. And it was an incredible discussion. I learned a lot. The intern learned so much about the field they wanted to go into because we took the time to do that. 
I love the question because it does get you thinking about what are the areas I want to learn from, but I think it's important to be like, this is a real thing you can do. And if you take somebody out to lunch and something you want to learn and just talk to them, you can really advance yourself in a field. Like you can get so much knowledge so quickly in these just informal discussions. So I know I I dodged the question a little bit there, but I do think that that idea is really achievable and it doesn't have to be a famous person out there. It can be a community leader in any space who can give you a ton of great ideas by just getting to sit down and see what they're doing. Yeah, I love the spirit of that. And I also had a lot of fantastic conversations with people who are under the radar, but doing really incredible things. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, John. I I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed listening. We'll include links to what John's doing over at Paladin Cloud and where to find him on the web, but definitely subscribe for more episodes and happy hacking. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking!